Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, the Trans-Tasman Podcast Network by and for the climate community. As I record this, it's the morning of October 23rd, Saturday, just eight days till the start of COP26. In Glasgow, Scotland, the 26th Conference of the Parties of the UNCCP? That sounded really good until I got lost in acronym land. The UN Climate Conference, we all know what it is, I don't have to try to demystify it, but definitely from the outside, all this can seem very opaque and hard to follow along with and hard to grasp sometimes. And ultimately, that's what, well, I'm working out what ultimately Climactic is here to do, but that's one aspect of what Climactic can do, is express our confusion and our desire to know more about the big important things than we do and hopefully to help break it down in ways that help make it more approachable and more relatable. It's been fascinating to watch the media for the last couple weeks where climate has become front and center. It's very hard to escape now coverage of climate, which is exactly what I want to have happen, and I'm sure you're all very thrilled at it as well. Does the News Corp 180, the blatant greenwash of the 16-page wraparound of talking about the ways that hydrogen and renewable power and the harnessing of coal for climate action. Uh, Is it leaving a bad taste in your mouth like mine? Probably. But is it undeniably good at a macro level that it's impossible to hide from climate reality anymore? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. So just a quick bit of updates from me and a little bit of housekeeping before I jump into featuring something from the Climactic Collective After four weeks off, thanks to Eve Brennan for being the guest publisher, I've had a bit of time to think and reflect on the purpose of Climactic as a feed and what the mission of the Climactic Collective as a network is. And definitely going into the new year, I want to make some changes and sort of refocus things because there was a time where you couldn't find people talking about climate. Now you can. So I want to find... What is the value that we bring and where should we be focusing and what can we do better or at least more intentionally? I really feel like the climate podcasting space needs a bit of a cheerleader for it. It needs a critic. It needs a a champion. And Climactic as a feed has kind of been doing that for a while, albeit in a very small, humble way. But because we've got in this something that's not self-promotional. It's not trying to be the biggest and best climate show itself, but instead push the whole space forward. I'm very interested in maybe a pivot to climactic highlighting, featuring, curating, just advocating for good climate podcasts. So that would mean maybe casting a wider net out to the whole world and also helping those shows on the Climactic Collective who want to kind of 
I don't know, maybe help the podcasters in the Climactic Collective who want to do things on a more regular schedule, maybe have more resources to up their production values, basically see it as not just a thing they're doing, but a thing they want to do somewhat semi-professionally. And I approach the P word hesitantly. I'd love to see the Climactic Collective kind of adding on some more resources in terms of people and actual access to studios and tools and everything to help us kind of become a quote-unquote real climate podcast network in the vein of other podcast networks in the world who can really help push their member shows forward and help them get noticed and like take them to award shows and everything. So just thinking out loud here, Climactic early in the new year is probably going to look quite different than it does now. And that's cool. That's exciting. So right now we're a week away from COP26, and a lot of the shows in the Climactic Collective have been doing coverage of the lead-up and explaining how COP26 works, what it is, and I really wanted to feature one of those episodes here on the show today because I was catching up on this show last night after a long hiatus of not being able to keep up with the output from this show because it's gone daily for the last few weeks, which is incredible. It's, it's such a lot of work. A great job has been done with it. So I'll tell you what that episode is in just a moment before I play it for you. But before we get to that, I just want to highlight some other amazing work that's been happening on the Climactic Collective. And I'm really proud of the fact that everything just kind of runs here now. That There's a lot of shows that are active. They may not publish on regular schedules, but they publish when they can. And they don't kind of need permission to. Uh, And so you can come to Climactic.fm just like I do sometimes and just find things that have been put here, which are a delight and a surprise. An episode I want to highlight that does that is from PCAN, which is the PCAN podcast, the Place-Based Climate Action Network, which is out of the UK. And this episode is called Climate Action in Theory and Practice. And it's looking at this group in the UK. Uh, this was brought to us from our correspondent, our man on the ground in Leeds, Simon And this episode is all about the two co-hosts of this show, Kate and John, talking to three other members of their PCAN group about a book they've just written called Addressing the Climate Crisis, Local Action in Theory and Practice. And I'm loving all these resources and handbooks and guides that are coming out to help people in a locality, whether that's a, a city council, a state, a province, how to understand the regional implications and opportunities for climate action. Um, we've got in Melbourne, uh, Dale Matthews, a, a former city councilman from, uh, I'm going to get it wrong, maybe Dale, apologies, uh, Darabin City Council, and he's written a like local council climate action kit where it's like, okay, your council's taken a climate emergency declaration, what do they do now? And Dale's laid it all out step by step as a counselor himself and from that perspective and experience and made it really easy for you uh, residents of Darabin whether that's you or someone you know, uh, to pick up that document and then really advocate hard for those actions to take place at the council level, which is ultimately where climate action happens. We can't all just scream at the federal government all day and not take care of our local communities. We need to see action there. Of course, that's where action really happens. (sighs) So highly recommend checking out this episode of PCAN, all about that context, but in the UK and all around, I believe, the city of Leeds, which is really cool. Another good episode to highlight, this one's very COP26 relevant, uh, episode 11 of Penn, the Postgraduate Environment Podcast. Find it on Climactic as Penn Podcasts, 
but episode 11 is with Amelia Gunneridge. She's a Global Voices Program member, uh, a COP26 youth delegate, and that is about the importance of youth engagement and also explaining the COP26 process for those of us, like myself, who may not know very much about the moving parts. Global Voices is kind of like a youth congress kind of thing. You know, there's institutions, people like the University of Melbourne, who select the uh, representatives that are going to go in their name. And so Amelia is the University of Melbourne's selection for Global Voices this year. And I don't believe, from listening to it, I'm not sure if there is a youth delegation going to COP26 this time. I know there was in COP25. Uh, Shout out to friend of the show, uh, Cree. McNamara, who was one of those delegates, but you know the importance of youth being there, especially in the Australian context, to say that, yeah, the youth don't agree with our federal leaders' position here. It helps other nations identify that, yeah, don't don't bet on what Australia is doing this year and last year as what we're going to do in five or ten years, because we're not. Because we're seeing very clearly in polling and just in action that youth in Australia are not fossil fuel focused. They do see the concerns about climate change and they do want Australia to be a relevant and viable continent and country in the future. Which is a good segue to the episode I'm going to play for you today. I'm going to stop talking, instead play curator and get out of the way. This episode is from Climate Conversations, and I used to say that Climactic is the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective. In fact, I may have, at the start of this, just had a habit. But truly, over the last few weeks, Climate Conversations has been our number one show on the network, and that is absolutely a testament to the hard work and perseverance of Robert McLean, the host, the one-man band behind Climate Conversations, who for weeks now has been doing these daily quick climate links bringing you things you might not have heard or might not have paid much attention to, updates and happenings, and really good clips and grabs from other things. So uh, what I'm about to play for you now is going to be maybe a surprise, and that we're going to hear for several minutes a voice who's never appeared on a climactic show before, and that is the voice of Andrew Twiggy Forrest, Fortescue Metal CEO, Captain of Industry, and now a vocal proponent of Australia to become a hydrogen superpower. This is nice and short at 12 minutes, so you've already listened to me rattle on for longer than that. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll bring you a great episode of Climactic next week once I've got my head back in the game. If you have any thoughts on what you'd like to see Climactic become in the new year, or if you'd like to get involved in any way, please drop me a line at hello at climactic.fm. Love to speak to you. All right, I'll pass now to Robert McLean, host of Climate Conversations. The Nationals party room will be having their meeting at three o'clock. So I'm going to do a little bit of prep work now. It's always been the case that something as important as this is a decision that's not made by one person. It's not even made by the leadership group. It's made by the party in general, the Nationals Party. We take great pride in the... Demo- we believe we're the most democratic party in, this, in the parliament. And part of that is allowing people on crucial decisions which affect their constituency, which affect regional areas, um, which we have an experience in the past that regional people, to be quite honest, have been done over, especially in the vegetation management laws, that we uh, allow the people who have to go back 
and explain their decision one way or the other, the opportunity to be as, as much part of that decision as possible. So, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm quite at ease with this because really I'm, I'm the chair of this process. Uh, I, I want to make sure that uh, in, in an impartial way we, we gauge the sentiment of the room, give the right opportunities for those to ask the, the questions that they think need to be asked. Angus Taylor will come in and uh, give, give his explanation and we'll give people a, a chance to talk to that and afterwards we'll have a, a long discussion with the, with the, um, with the party members as, as to exactly which way we go forward. Well, here we are. A day after Barnaby Joyce's so-called long discussion and Australian voters have absolutely no idea what direction the National Party will take with regard to the 2050 net zero decision. Mr Joyce was speaking just before going into a party room discussion about the net zero matter. Welcome to the latest episode of Climate Conversations and this is today's Quick Climate Links and I am your host, Robert McLean. This constant dithering and intellectual constipation by the Liberal National Party reminds me of something I heard just last week on a webinar I sat through when one of the panellists likened what was happening in the Liberal National Party to a Year 11 student being handed a project in the first week of their studies to be completed at the end of Year 12. That's two years away. The two years had gone by... And on the night before the project was due, that's two years later, and the student had done nothing, that student was rushing to complete the project, and in doing so, was confused and generally making a mess of it. The Liberal National Party is making a mess of trying to figure out how we combat the climate crisis. They've wasted their time, and here we are, standing on the cusp of what is going to be the world's most important meeting and they have no plan, no plan at all. Oh, correction, correction. The Liberal National Party does have a plan. It has a plan to protect the industries that are at the core of the climate crisis. Yes, they want to protect the fossil fuel industries, their rich mates. The idea of green hydrogen has really taken off, and the idea has been driven by mining billionaire Twiggy Forrest. And so let's listen now to an interview involving, well, first of all, the New South Wales Deputy Premier Paul O'Toole, then the New South Wales Treasurer Matt Keane, and finally, we'll hear from Twiggy Forrest. Much of the noise you can hear in the background of this interview is the automated press cameras just rattling away. Today is an exciting day because it actually shows that the New South Wales government is investing in the future, investing in our kids, investing in jobs, but this is going to be also exciting for regional New South Wales. What we're seeing in regional New South Wales is special activation precincts that have been identified. This is the opportunity to create these hydrogen hubs. This is the opportunity to provide economic growth, the opportunity to provide jobs into our communities. We know that places like the Hunter, the Illawarra, they're the powerhouses of this state. But we also know that we're going to be transitioning away from coal. So it's making sure that we're thinking about what next. What is the future going to look like? This renewable energy, this hydrogen hub strategy that we are putting forward is going to see private investment and the opportunity to grow regional New South Wales. 
We've got places like Parks, Wagga Wagga, Hay, they've been identified as renewable energy zones. We've already laid the platform. Today's hydrogen study is actually taking us to the next level. Well, we know that hydrogen is going to be the fuel that will power the low-carbon economy. And today's announcement will ensure that New South Wales is the green hydrogen capital of the world. That means jobs here from New South Wales, that means opportunity, and that means that we're going to be an economic superpower of the future. Today's announcement will support $3 billion worth of investment to grow the hydrogen industry focused on the Illawarra and the Hunter. That means we future-proof those regions, future-proof those regions and ensure that there are high-paid uh, jobs in those areas, uh, economic opportunities and prosperity for everyone in the regions and right across the state. This announcement will see between 80 and $270 billion worth of private investment coming into New South Wales between now and 2050. It will see 10,000 new jobs in New South Wales by 2030. The size of the hydrogen industry here in New South Wales will be as big as the coal industry in New South Wales by 2050. This will ensure that we are future-proofed and that we will be an economic superpower for generations to come. Thank you, Premier. Thank you, Ministers. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I probably challenge slightly my very good friend. Um, there will be no bigger industry than green hydrogen, green ammonia, green electricity. It will dwarf the scale of iron ore, it will dwarf the scale of coal in our country. To capture it here in New South Wales, like we have in Queensland, is a function of some great things which Australia has going for it. We have the most wonderful solar, wind and natural resources and a hard-working, diligent, intelligent people. Here in New South Wales, like I've witnessed in Queensland, we also have that unsung, poorly understood ingredient, and that's leadership. Leadership which is determined for the people of Australia and the people of New South Wales to rapidly build up in your state what will be the world's largest industry. I really want to put my hands out to all of those politicians and governments who are still resisting it, still calling renewable energy by names or trying to talk renewable energy down and just say this to everyone who's remotely concerned about this massive global scale green energy, green products future which is coming the way at the strong and earnest invitation of the New South Wales Government to the New South Wales people. Do not deny your voters, your constituents, their future. Do not talk it down. Do not belittle it. Give them the choice. The fossil fuel sector has had a magnificent day. The fossil fuel sector will still play an important role for years to come. But to talk down and to belittle the huge green energy sector that will be the largest in the world to your constituents means you are betraying 
their trust in you. You're giving them absolute falsehoods when they're relying on you for the truth. Essentially, you're betraying their future, you're betraying the kids. Their kids have every reason to look at a bright energy future with zero pollution like every other child on the planet. So I say to any short-termists, don't talk it down. Give constituents the choice. Don't deny them the choice. You have a fossil fuel sector which is in decline. We all know that all around the world. You have a green energy future which can make steel, can make fertilisers, can make cement, can make ships be powered. We're proving that in Western Australia. It took us but four months, four months, to take bunker sea oil out of a ship's engine, retool it, put in new injectors, and run it with pure green ammonia, zero pollution, in just 120 days. It took five months to take huge train engines, the biggest in the world, and start running it on 70% green hydrogen and green ammonia, switching between the two, working out which one is best. We now need to retool that engine to bring it up to 100%. It took just three months, 90 days, to take out a huge drivetrain of a Caterpillar haul truck and replace it with an invented here, manufactured here, installed and commissioned hydrogen fuel cell haul truck, the first in the world, and these are all over the world and they've been running for decades. That, ladies and gentlemen, is our future. That is the start of the green pollution-free industrial revolution. I deeply want to thank the New South Wales government and the New South Wales people in particular for welcoming us. I want to reach out to everyone in the coal sector, oil and gas sector, and your investors. Come with us on this journey. This journey does not have an end. This journey is infinite. It will last as long as mankind does on this planet. It does not have a date. It is not polluting the world. It is about creating a great economy for hundreds of thousands of great jobs and leaving the planet better than we found it for our kids. Thank you very much. If green hydrogen is as good as Twiggy suggests, we're on a winner. Check out the episode notes for links to those stories and the links to many more stories. That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations, including quick climate links. Thanks for your company. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind for whoever you meet is fighting a great battle. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Media.